All right, Johnny, we had uh, Lee Waters in for this conversation. Awesome discussion with Dr. Waters. Uh, She is the founding director of the Positive Psychology Center at the University of Melbourne. She serves on the scientific board for UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, which we're both big fans of. Serves for the UN Happiness Council. She's got an awesome TED Talk, a terrific book on strengths and strength-based parenting. She's just a really wonderful expert in the field to talk Mm -hmm. to about all things well-being. What stood out to you from our conversation with Lee? Firstly, her definition of flourishing. Feeling good, functioning well, doing good, and the connection she draws with various areas of positive psychology. Yeah. What about you? I really loved her search framework. So just thinking through like the steps to get to flourishing, I found that to be very practical, right? And applicable. And I think our listeners will as well. But she had some comments about education I thought you really liked also. Yeah, I mean, as you know, I'm really interested in the connection between education's like epistemic aims, because knowledge and understanding and its well-being aims. I wanted to know what her view of, of the connection between those is. And she had a really interesting answer on yeah. education yeah. aim being flourishing. Absolutely. So yeah, we're excited for all of you to hear our conversation with Dr. Lee Waters. And without further ado, here it is. Enjoy. So Lee, you've spent years in academia, right? You've been immersed in the science of well-being. You've worked alongside some of the fields, I think, kind of top researchers and well-known names. You've got accomplishment after accomplishment after accomplishment. I think one of the things we've been finding so far in our conversations is that you know, there's lots of different ways to conceptualize human flourishing, right? How do you conceptualize it? How do you think of it? Mm. Oh, I love that question. Great question to start with, because you're right, there is sort of literally decades of research um, and people have devoted their entire academic career to defining what we mean by flourishing. And I think every individual has their own sort of intuitive sense of moments where they are flourishing. For me, I've just tried to keep it really simple. And so the definitions that, you know, I've provided in my academic work are that flourishing is a state of feeling good, of functioning well, and of doing good. And so the feeling good is the internal state that we have. So those moments, and hopefully they're more than moments, you know, days, weeks, months, periods of time where we um, feel good inside ourselves, we're confident, we have, we're sort of on a good emotional keel. And then the functioning well is more to do with the external. So being able to complete the tasks we need to do, uh, develop good habits, reach for goals, you know, know that we can sort of do what it is that we need to do to function well in the world. And then, and actually the feel good function well comes initially from um, research in the UK, John. So research by Felicia Huppert and um, her colleagues And then I added to that the do good part because I really do think that, for me anyway, a big part of flourishing is not just how I'm feeling and functioning but how I am contributing. So that pro-social element of doing good for others. And I think one of the sort of key spin-offs of developing my own states of high levels of well-being and mental health and, and doing everything that I can using the science of positive psychology myself to have those moments and states and and periods of flourishing, that's when I'm at my best for others. And so really simply for me, it's feeling good, functioning well, and doing good. I love that addition of doing good, right? Like you, you often hear the first two and they make plenty of good sense, but I really like the addition of doing good. And it seems to me, I think something you're listening here is kind of a bi-directional nature 
um, with doing good and functioning well, right? They see and feeling good, frankly, right? They're all sort of symbiotic, right? Or cyclical in some ways. Yeah, they all feed into each other. And, you know, we, we all know the research showing that um, when we feel good in ourselves, we're more likely to be pro-social. But as you say, that bi-directional relationship where we are, when we engage in pro-social behaviour, we're helpful towards others, we show right. compassion, we have altruism, we go out of our way to make a difference in someone else's life, that actually turns back and is good for us. And, and you know, sort of the fascinating medical research showing that, for example, when we volunteer our time, that increases our, like, T helper cells, like, it literally boosts our own immune system. Because we are, I mean, we're hardwired to be social creatures and we have to take care of the pack and the tribe in order to, back in the savannah, in order to for us to survive. And I think, you know, the global pandemic has showed us that um, we were still really, really deeply social creatures. So there is that bi-directional relationship of we do Mm -hmm. good, it helps us to feel good Mm -hmm. and function well. And when we're feeling good and functioning well, we're in a state where we can do good. So I'm curious, um, so those three components or buckets like make a lot of good sense. And then, you know, John and I want to nerd out on some of the smaller components with you a little bit because, so, you know, one of the sponsors of the show is the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard. We've talked a lot about their model. My understanding of a lot of your work is if you're trying to assess feeling good, functioning well, and doing good, that a lot of times you'll, you orient maybe towards that PERMA model. Is is that accurate? Or are you using, you know, if you're to break down those three areas into subcomponents, mm-hmm. what would your subcomponents be? Well, I mean, for me, the work that I've been doing over the last eight years is, is on developing um, an evidence-based framework. It's called the search framework. And um, yeah, I know you're familiar with the, the search framework, Nick. So this is, a search is an acronym. That stands for six key pathways that contribute to our state of flourishing. And so the S in search stands for strengths. And then we've got emotional management, attention and awareness, relationships, coping, and then habits and goals. And those six pathways came from a very large research study that I conducted with one of my PhD students eight years ago. It was published in the Journal of Positive Psychology. Um, with a with a pretty kind of unique methodology, with it's called a bibliometric analysis. Don't want to get too technical, but you did say you wanted to nerd out or geek out. Absolutely, so, absolutely. go for um, it. And what Ruben and I did was, I wanted to come up with a framework, but I wanted to come up with a science driven framework. So start with what we already know from the science to develop the framework for flourishing. And we were able to get access to. Thompson and Ruder, which is a large uh, library, I suppose you'd call it, it's a publishing company, but they, they're the repository for all of the peer-reviewed psychology studies that are published across the world. So we have over 700 psychology journals that publish peer-reviewed psychology studies, and those journals, every single article is held by Thompson and Ruder in Philadelphia, okay. um, at close to close to unique, and um we got access to their library. They gave us access to their library for an 18-year period of time. And so we were able to go in and take from that library all of the scientific peer-reviewed psychology studies that had measured or tested interventions around well-being. Okay. So I want to make a little point of note here. These Please were do. not Please do. Yeah, these were not necessarily the, the more traditional psychology interventions around 
reducing anxiety, reducing depression, reducing negative affect, um, dealing with kind of pathos. They were the, the, the new studies that were specifically looking at how do we increase the positive end of our mental health continuum. And across that 18-year time period, there were 18,400, actually 18,403 peer-reviewed psychology studies that had looked at that positive end of the mental health continuum. What are the factors that boost up our joy, our our vitality, um, our hope, our optimism, the use of our character strengths, our life satisfaction, and so on, so that the sort of feeling good, functioning well, and doing good area. And with that very, very large data set, so 18,403 psychology studies, we were able to engage in two types of analysis, a bibliometric analysis and a cluster analysis. But essentially what those two types of analysis gave us was some key areas that researchers had studied. So it's kind of, if you if you take it out of the scientific realm, the way that I think of that study, it's, it's sort of the equivalent of Ruben and myself sitting down with 18,400 psychology researchers from across the globe from who published in 700 journals and asking them, like, what have you found? Having a conversation with them about over this long time period, what are the key factors that lead to well-being? And what we found through that analysis was um, initially, actually, we found five key factors, which we called pathways. And, and that, that's a language choice for me deliberately because um, I guess we'll talk about this later, but a big push in my own research is is making it transferable to practice. And so initially in the paper we called them domains, the five domains of positive functioning for the research audience, but I took those domains into schools and I called them pathways because that's what they are. What the research shows is that if you engage in skills and practices along these pathways, that's where you increase your chances of having this state of flourishing. And so these pathways that came out form the acronym of SEARCH. Right. So I think it's the state of flourishing. There's sort of something in between here, right? Like kind of your three buckets. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but, and then so SEARCH helps lead to this outcome that's sort of the conceptual uh, or the scientific conceptualization of human flourishing, right? And I heard you say some of the things, so feeling good or positive emotion, right? Hope, optimism, but what, what would be in sort of that middle level, that bridge between your three buckets and search, so to speak? Ah, okay. I'm not sure I understand your question. So So here's, here's the way. So Sharon has always been under the impression Mm -hmm. that search is because when we hear you say pathway, we hear we translate that very literally, right? So yeah. I hear yeah. pathway and then I think to what? To flourishing. Yeah. Well, Correct. how did you measure flourishing? Perma, human mm. flourishing, subjective well-being, eudaimonia, yeah. Carol Riff, right? Yeah. That that's what I'm trying to get at here. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah and if I if I if I could um connect, yeah, the, that's also also where I'm trying to fit this in. So we've got right. these wonderful this wonderful tripartite model of um feeling good, functioning well, and doing good. Yeah. And then I'm seeing search as being a pathway towards those three domains. Um, and I get, I guess another way of phrasing its question or kind of a, con- a connection with that is, is that what human flourishing is viewed? These kind of these three key aims and search the pathway towards those. Yeah, spot on. So um, for me, I do human flourishing around those three domains, but 
and, and search is the mechanism. So the the flourishing is the outcome, but you need pathways or processes or practices to get to that outcome. And so search is what provides you with the pathways. And within each of those pathways, there are particular positive psychology interventions and practices that we can use, for example, around learning our strengths and playing to our strengths and having strengths challenges and doing strength spotting. So these are all the individual practices that you do along the pathway of strengths. And that's one of the six key pathways that we engage in. It's a journey, you know, to get to that mm-hmm. outcome of flourishing. I've also mapped um, search as the pathways that lead to PERMA. So, for example, if you take the P. Okay, that, that's what we that's what I was referencing. Okay, great. Yeah. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. Yeah. If you take the P in PERMA, which is positive emotions, um, how do you how do you have a state? You know, you take Barbara Fredrickson's work and Marty Seligman's work. And so Marty says, you know, we need to have positive emotions. That's a key part of flourishing, which for me would fall under the feel-good component of flourishing. Um and Barbara Fredrickson's work shows that, you know, we need an asymmetry. We need to have more positive emotions than negative emotions. So the question is, great, okay, how? And particularly because I work with schools and I'm working with teenagers. And so you actually have to, you can tell them it would be good if you had more positive emotions on a daily basis than negative emotions. You know, And I actually have two teenagers yeah. um, who will roll their eyes at me and go, yeah, right, okay, so how do you do that? So Search um, is very deeply evidence-based and there's a lot more over the last eight years, a lot more science that's come from that initial scientific study to kind of validate and scientifically verify those those six search pathways. But for me, I see them as the action, like they're action pathways that get you. So you think about the P in PERMA, positive emotions, how do you get there? Well, in Uh, the search pathways, we've got, for example, emotional management. So emotional management isn't just positive emotions. It's actually learning how to understand and utilise and manage the full continuum of your emotions from anger, frustration, boredom, guilt, through to joy, um, love, empathy, compassion. And so you can't get to a state of the P in PERMA unless you've learned the basic skill set of understanding and managing the full continuum of your emotions for example you know and you take the e engagement in perma um, for me and actually marty says this himself in his research that you know one of the key ways of getting a sense of engagement is to utilize your strengths so if you want this outcome of engagement which is part of the perma definition of flourishing then you need to play to your strengths you need Mm -hmm. to manage your emotions you need to have good relationships attention and awareness is a really key one that i I personally feel often gets overlooked in the field of positive psychology Um, and likewise coping. So Mm. coping by definition is looking at how do you adapt, adjust, overcome struggles, challenges, loss, adversity and failure. And that's often missing in if we just focus on the outcome of flourishing, we're not looking at what is the context, you know, and, and we can't flourish if we're only and always in a positive context, just because mm-hmm. that's not life, you know? So Nick, you, well, I think. Yeah, well, I was just going to say like, we, we should, I don't want to gloss over this because we, at this point, like we've had Todd Kastian on, we've talked about sort of, you know, the upside of your dark side. We've, it yeah. seems like almost every conversation, John, right? Like at some point, somebody brings up the appropriate role of unpleasantness And I think we just want to distinguish and say, when we talk flourishing, we don't mean that everything is a 10 out of 10 all the time, every day, right? 
we're talking about generally more off, like you said, kind of an asymmetry, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an asymmetry. Yeah. And flourishing to me, flourishing is a is a state. So we, we aim for flourishing and we can have time, states, moments when we're flourishing, but we're human beings. So there's always going to be this dynamism that's going on between sort of at the at the kind of uber end of well-being or just a pretty good day or sometimes a not so good day or not so good week or a not so good couple of years going through a global pandemic and um then the challenge is how do you find those moments of flourishing when you are living through right adversity loss challenge and failure and so um you know one of my kind of research streams is post traumatic growth and how it is that we can find the silver linings through adversity, how it is that we dig deeper and learn more about ourselves and reprioritize our values and find out what our strengths truly are when they're being sort of tested to their maximum capacity. And so um, that weaves into the search pathways because we look at the negative emotions within emotional management and we look at coping, which by definition means that you're going through challenge or loss or adversity or failure. And we look at attention and awareness and how it is that the our capacity to bring focus to something um, is a key factor in our well-being and our capacity to have that inner awareness of what's going on for me right now and awareness of what's happening around us, awareness of the emotions and actions of others is a key pathway to getting to that state of being able to feel good, function well and do good. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, for that very detailed and rich answer, Lee. So I just want to clarify this framework for our listeners. We've got a lot of acronyms floating around and structures yeah. here. It's psychology so, after all, right? <laughs> it is. We have our own language. <laughs> please, uh, please tell me if I've understood it correctly. Um, mm-hmm. So you are you're you've got an adaptation of the the PERMA model of flourishing. PERMA being positive emotion, engagement, positive relationships, meaning and accomplishment. But um, in one of the criticisms you have of positive psychology is that it doesn't pay sufficient attention to attention and awareness or to coping. And so you want to kind of add that to the PERMA uh, conception of flourishing as well. Synonymous with that vision of flourishing is your tripartite account of what it means to flourish, which is feeling good, functioning well, and doing good. So they're just kind of different versions of the same thing, effectively. Yeah, exactly. And the pathway towards that mm-hmm. is the search model strengths, emotional management, attention and awareness. So we've just mentioned that that's how that's practiced in there. Relationships, coping and habits and goals. Correct, yeah. Right, right. And the pathways in the sense that those are the things that get us to that rich, that adapted version of the PERMA model, which is also feeling good, functioning well and doing good. Have I understood that correctly? Yes, you have. So whatever um, version or, or model that you're using for flourishing is the outcome. Yeah. It could be the tripartite model or it could be PERMA. Yeah. Um, what my research shows is that the six key pathways to get there are the search pathways. Fantastic. Almost, I mean, almost irrespective of the measure. Yeah. Pretty, well, and we've also measured search with um, other kind of unidimensional aspects of functioning, like life satisfaction, for example. Oh, really? And, yeah, and search predicts life satisfaction. So is at that, the moment... Is that with, not to get too nerdy here, but is that with the satisfaction with life scale? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. Dina's, at Dina's scale. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I might even, we might even try and visualize that on a sort of diagram in the 
blog post that accompanies this podcast and get you to check that it's correct. Yeah, yeah, out there. Right. Yeah. Um, what? <laughs> one final question on this. Um, I'm I'm trying to place where meaning and purpose fits in on this on this model. Wow. I can see various ways that it it would, but I wonder mm-hmm. if you could just say because that's going to be clearly a, a vital component of flourishing, and, and I, I doubt you you would disagree with that. But no, where is that built into this conception of flourishing? Do you mean where is it built into search? Well, I mean, I see it with PERMA, yeah. Um, mm. I'm seeing, I'm wondering whether what in search gets mm. us to meaning there. I mean, I can see various areas such as relationship. Yeah. yeah, that's a really great question, John. And we don't have meaning as a specific pathway. The reason being is that, you know, because we use the science, we use the 18 years of science, it didn't come out as a distinct cluster. Mm-hmm. It didn't come out as a distinct pathway. But what we saw in... The research was that me, the the studies on meaning kind of landed. They wove their way in to different pathways. So, for example, coping, going through life's adversities, coming out the other end and realizing I'm stronger. I've changed my values. I can get through these things. That's a big part of having that sense of meaning in life. Emotions. You know, Mike Steger's work shows that just like the the kind of daily emotions and the way that we engage with life emotionally helps us to form some sense of like purpose and coherence, which are two key elements of meaning, utilising our strengths, particularly um, utilising our strengths for the good of others. So, you know, relationships are a key part of meaning as well. So I I see meaning more as a, a positive byproduct of mm-hmm of engaging in the practices that Mm. you would use, the common sense practices around search and developing good relationships and coping and attention and awareness. You know, attention and awareness practices are things, obviously, mindfulness, um, but things like savouring and where it is that we focus our attention, um, understanding the negativity bias. So these are all really concrete practices that we can teach anyone, adults. In, In my case, I teach teachers uh, and students at school, but when they're developing those individual practices, they help us get a sense of where do I fit in to the big, to the grand scheme of things? How can I utilize my strengths? How can I have good relationships? How do I cope with life's adversity? What are my big goals? Because we've talked about the habits and goals pathway. These are all things that help us develop a sense of meaning. So for me, meaning is more about the outcome. It's a, it's it's about the it's built into flourishing as an outcome rather than the pathways to get there. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does to me, because I think going back to your kind of, you know, um, tripart model there, you've got feeling, well, I would argue having a sense of meaning is a good feeling. I would argue it probably, you know, to have a sense of meaning, there's got to be some sense of functioning well, right? And I think doing good is probably heavily relying on at least some forms of meaning, some sort of connection to something greater than our individual selves, right? So I, I certainly yeah. see how it could be embedded in there, yeah. And I and again, it's that sort of um, bi-directional relationship because being able to function well gives you that sense of purpose and coherence, which are two of the key elements of meaning. Um, but when you have a sense of meaning in your life, that helps you to function well. You know, you, you get up in the morning and you're like, okay, my sense of meaning, in, you know, my case, is to be a good mum and to be a good wife and to do some good research that makes a difference to the world. And because I have that sort of sense of meaning of like what is my, why am I here, 
that helps me to get up and function when there's days where I'm like, oh, I'm a little bit too mm-hmm. tired and I can't really be bothered and I'm like, no, get up. Yeah. So, again, there's that sort of bi-directional relationship. I will also add there that um, Peggy Kern and uh, myself, Alejandro Adler and um, Associate Professor Matt White did a research study a number of years ago now, probably I guess about eight years ago, looking at PERMA with teenagers and um, meaning didn't come out. And this was a kind of, um, it was a quantitative study, but in a sense it was a little bit of a kind of grounded theory approach because we didn't, um, we tried to measure the, the five elements of PERMA and meaning didn't come out as a reliable factor for teenagers. Mm. And I have had quite a lot of conversations with teachers in schools who do say it's unrealistic to expect primary school kids and teenagers to have this sense of meaning and purpose. Mm. And if we're sort of saying that PERMA is the is what we're aiming to achieve and then young people don't yet have that sense of meaning and purpose, does that mean that they can't flourish? So I mm-hmm. think I think meaning's an interesting one. Um, that's not to say that's the case for all young kids and teenagers. Some do. Some already really have a sense of wanting to do good in the world and, um, so it, you know, it, purchasing green products and taking care of our planet and those yeah. kinds of things. But, you know, that was just, it was an interesting finding for us, research finding that was published in the Journal of Positive Psychology that has been anecdotally kind of validated by a lot of educators that I work with. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting transition, I think, into just chatting about your visible well-being program a, a bit more. Um, so I'd love for you to kind of just walk us through, you know, what the program is, how you sort of execute or implement search, the whole school approach, those sorts of things. But I but I also want to, and I don't know if you want to respond to this directly or just plant the seed and maybe we'll come back to it. When we think about flourishing or well-being, I think there's an interesting question of um, time point. Mm-hmm. Right? So like as somebody who sits here trying to think about how do we measure this in schools, as you know, we're trying to do at Shipley, right? Mm-hmm. When we say somebody's flourishing, is it that single point in time? Are we asking them every day? Are we asking them every period? Mm-hmm. And so if if the simple answer to that is no, then to me, some of what we're doing is saying we're trying to set them up with, you know, things that are aspirational mm-hmm. skills for the future. And that's, that's just where my head went when you were talking about meaning and purpose, because, okay, maybe it's unrealistic to expect a teenager, a primary school student to have that sense of meaning. Um, I guess the simple way of saying it is, does that mean we should ignore it then? Great question. Um, no, it is It is something that we, you know, we're hoping to cultivate from a developmental perspective. We're hoping to cultivate that. So we give the, the kind of age-appropriate knowledge and skill sets. We help young children understand what their strengths are and how they can use their strengths to feel good, function well and do good. We help young people understand the purpose of the full continuum of emotions and how their emotional life shapes their sense of sort of um, who they are, their coherence in life. We help young people develop good social intelligence and relationship-oriented skills so that so what you're doing, the way that I see it anyway, is um, creating these evidence-based building blocks in young people so that um, they can have the age-appropriate states of flourishing right now, but you're also just building up that mental health toolkit 
so that when they graduate from school, they do have all of these practices that if, we, again, if we're just talking about meaning as an outcome, that um, they're able to draw on when life throws them a curveball. They're able to sit back and say, okay, how am I feeling about this? How am I responding about this? What strengths do I have to draw on? Who are my relationships that I can turn to? What are some new goals that I would like to have that come out of this situation? So they know how to ask themselves questions that make meaning during times of uncertainty and adversity and Mm -hmm. vice versa. When things are going well for them, they know how to use those building blocks, which I think come from the search pathways, to contribute to a sense of meaning or, if you want to say PERMA, to know how to have more positive emotions than negative emotions, to know what gives you that sense of engagement and so on. Which comes back to your your comment earlier about it maybe being sort of a natural byproduct of acquiring some of these skills, developing mm. competencies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and look, that's not to say that we shouldn't we shouldn't also be intentionally aiming to have a sense of meaning and purpose in our life. We can't just leave it to chance and say it is a natural product. I do think it is a byproduct that comes out of these things. So it kind of, it happens by default, but you could also make it happen by design. I'm just a little bit wary of, of, of meaning when we're talking with young people. I don't want them to feel like, oh, I don't have a sense of meaning and purpose. Does that mean like I'm failing? <laughs> you know, I'm failing on the flourishing thing because... Um, there's just so many ways in which we can get reach that state of sort of flourishing and have that vitality and feel good about ourselves and sort of do good for other people. Again, mm-hmm. it, does, it doesn't mean a 10 out of 10 on every metric, right? And in yeah. fact, I think you mentioned Alejandro. I think some of his research showed like a lot of times a high score on a flourishing metric might be an eight out of 10. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, I mean, can I, can I just ask Lee where, where you would, because I can see, uh, the point is a very interesting point about why primary school age children, it, it, it is ambitious to expect them to have clarified a, or have gained or conceptualized or formed a, a sense of meaning and purpose, like a strong sense of meaning and purpose at that age. Yeah. Um, but adolescence, I mean, that's obviously a, a broad term, but let's say mm. um, senior school students aged sort of 16 to 18, young, almost young adults, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the 18 years old, young adults. Um, I don't think it's too ambitious to expect them to have started to form a perhaps form a quite a strong sense of meaning and purpose. So where do you, at least in a vague sense, and where does the research say that the kind of the age, there's an expectation of it actually, this is where, you know, adolescents do form a sense of meaning and purpose. For example, the, the human flourishing program at Harvard, they, they have a slightly amended version of their flourishing measure, including some amended questions based on, the, the part of the criterion for assessing meaning and purpose for that period of life, 12 yeah. to 18 in, in their mm. measure. Mm. Um, so where do you see, the kind of vaguely speaking, at the age where we should expect students to actually start to form a sense of meaning and purpose? And that is something that should concern us if they're not. Yes. Okay. So um, a couple of things to say around that. Uh, I, I'll be really interested to see the outcomes from the Human, Human Flourishing Project around that. The study that I mentioned um, before with Peggy Kern, that was with 13 to 17-year-olds where meaning didn't come out as a factor for those. So, but, so I can't comment from a research perspective on late teens, but I can kind of comment from a, like, a developmental psychology perspective. And what we know is around the age of 17, um, the neuropsychologists talk about back-to-front growth. So, 
our brain growth kind of starts at the back of our brain and moves forward into the front of our brain. And it's around the age of 17 that parts of the brain start to connect with each other a lot more. So we get a lot more myelation. We get a lot more um, white matter coming in around the age of 17, which connects all the different areas of the brain. So, you know, if you're, if you're teaching 16, 15-year-olds or if you're a parent to 15, 16-year-olds and you're listening to this right now, there is hope because around the age of 17, a whole lot of brain areas start to connect with each other. And so that would be around the age 17, 18, where I think from just from a developmental perspective, from a brain-based perspective, because we're having that back-to-front uh, growth or localization, that you would start to see young people asking those bigger questions about life and asking about, well, where do I fit into this and what do I want to do and how do I want to contribute? And, again, um, there's variation in brain growth. We know that the brain continues to grow until about the age of 26. So you'll see some 17-year-olds where the light kind of turns on and they do start to ask those questions around meaning and purpose and coherence and what it is they want to do and how it is they want to contribute. And for others, it'll be a little bit later. Um, I have a 19-year-old and I think I really saw with my son last year, Nick, at the age of 18, he started to sort of ask those bigger questions and I think it's partly to do with brain development. It's partly to do with the schooling system. So he was—he didn't really have to think about those questions until, but he was a little bit later, but, you know, he was in his final year of high school when he started to say, okay, what do I want to do? And, you know, he's made a decision that he's going to study psychology and he wants to sort of work in like the charity, not-for-profit, humanitarian sort of space. But that was really only at the age of 18 that he started to like situate himself within the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And so school, it, I think that you're right, John, in that those later teen years, from a schooling perspective and from a kind of societal perspective, we do start to ask those questions of young people and they have to make choices, post-school choices about whether they'll study or not and where they might want to work. And so there's a little bit of kind of what's happening on the outside and then there's the, the developmental psychology and the neuropsychologists who are showing this that, that around that age of 17, 18, um, areas of the brain start to interconnect as a highway a lot more effectively because we have this huge big growth in white matter that can connects everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's perhaps useful. Thank you very much, Lee. That's an excellent answer. It's perhaps useful to, I'll just add, um, this is the way in which the adolescent flourishing measure by the human flourishing program at Harvard differs from their adult flourishing measure insofar as the domain for meaning and purpose goes. Mm-hmm. They have two questions um, for meaning and purpose, and they modify one of them in the ad, in the adolescent measure. So in the adult measure, one of the items asks, uh, it says, I understand my purpose in life. Mm-hmm. Nought to 10, strongly disagree to 10, strongly agree. In the adolescent um, measure, it's changed to, I am doing things now that will help me achieve my goals in life. Mm, yeah, okay, I love that. And it, it's fascinating and wise to see that they've modified that item for that age group. And you know, that's, that is my understanding too, is that um, it's a bit much to expect someone at that age to say, I have a sense of meaning and purpose. But what I also really like about the modification of that item is, um, f- for me, it marries onto my research around search because when we did this big bibliometric analysis of these 18,403 studies and found, okay, what are the key um, domains, factors, pathways that researchers have studied that 
lead to the outcome of well-being, the, one of the key pathways was habits and goals. And we can introduce habits and goals to really young like young kids and teenagers as well. Um, good learning habits, good study habits, sleep habits, hygiene habits, and then uh, mental health habits. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we're having those habits and goals and you've you've kind of adapted the um, survey item to, for late teens to say, I'm starting to think about some goals in life. For me, habits and goals or goals is a pathway that helps increase our sense of flourishing and meaning is built into our sense of flourishing. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Um, shall we take this now? These, these We've really dug in deep on this. It's great. But should we take yeah. this in a slightly different direction now, Nick? Well, yeah, I'd love to maybe just kind of come back to visible well-being here a little bit, Lee, because oh. I think, you know, for the rest of the conversation, there's, a, I think, a unifying theme, which is like, how do you do this with young people? And we can talk about it in terms of visible, visible well-being and whole school approaches from an educational perspective, but it's it's about working with young people and educators, yeah. right? But young mm-hmm. people. Yeah. Then there's the thread about the, the strengths-based parenting more specifically, right? So we can kind of go down that trajectory. And I'd, I'd love to just start with just general how-to. Give us a little bit of overview of your visible well-being program, mm-hmm. sort of how you think about some of the implementation with these, these tricky age groups that we're talking about here. Mm, okay. So visible well-being um, began seven years ago and it was really, it, it came about for two reasons. One was I've been a long-term academic at the university, tenured professor, University of Melbourne, um, 25 years. And I guess around the 15-year mark of, of publishing, I, I really started to get a call of, I can't just sit in the ivory tower and publish these pretty cool studies, actually, but that only other academics read and cite in their research. Like, what's the point? Or maybe it was my, like, meaning epiphany, but um, I needed to find ways of taking my research and translating it so it would make a difference in someone's life. And, and I decided to focus on young people and taking the research and making a difference to a young person's life can be done through schools and it can be done through families. And so two of my broad research areas are the field of positive education and then the field of parenting. So with positive education, seven years ago, I developed a school-based training program for teachers. It's called Visible Wellbeing. Um, The framework for Visible Wellbeing is search. And so we go into schools and we train the teachers and or faculty and all staff, actually, it's a whole school approach. Um, So we train, everyone comes together for the training, HR manager, IT manager, senior leadership, groundskeeping staff, gardening team, everyone comes to do these modules, learning a little bit about the science and then some practices that they can do across each of these six pathways. And the reason why it's called visible wellbeing is two factors. One is... um, very strongly influenced by some of my colleagues in the Melbourne Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne, particularly Professor John Hattie, who is very famous for doing uh, a lot of research on the science of learning. So I guess something that you're also um, very familiar with, John, Um, and how it is that we create, like, effective learning in kids. So he did all these big meta-analyses, looking at all the different practices that teachers bring in and which are the practices that are actually effective in cultivating good learning. And so he said we need to make these teaching practices more visible in the classroom. 
Um, for some of you who are listening, you may also know the Harvard Visible Thinking Project. And so that, that's an aligned project that looks at the idea that thinking, which is this critical resource that we need in a classroom, happens invisibly. Like I don't know what either of you two are thinking right now because right. you're thinking inside of your own head. And so the, the folks at Harvard said what we need to be able to do is find these really simple techniques and practices in the classroom that take thinking, what a student is thinking, which is invisible, and make it more visible. Because if the student is thinking on the, along the right tracks and we can see that, we can say keep thinking that way, you'll do well. But if there's a fault in their logic, when we make it visible, we can say, oh, okay, hang on, we need to backtrack a bit here and think about what, you, what you know, you're thinking in this way. So the Harvard Project created what they call visible thinking routines. Yeah. Um, and it's it's basically just good teaching practice. You know, it's like say your thoughts out loud, write your thoughts down on a piece of flip chart paper, brainstorm with someone else. Uh, I remember when I was at high school, so we're talking in the 80s now, and my math teacher would always make us do the equation on a piece of paper, not in our head. Because that way she could find out at step three, like, okay, you got the wrong answer because at step three your thinking was faulty. And mm-hmm. that's, that's so that's basic good teaching practice. So John Hattie was doing a lot on, like, how do we make learning visible and Harvard people were doing a lot on how do we make thinking visible. And I just started thinking, you know, thinking is a key resource for effective learning, but so is our well-being. You know, we've got decades of research showing that well-being is intimately connected with good grades. And so well-being is also a resource in a classroom that is critical for effective learning. And it also happens to be invisible in the same way that the student's thinking is happening inside their head, the student's state of well-being is happening inside of them. So couldn't we just kind of apply the same logic? You know, aren't there some really practical applied positive psychology interventions and teaching strategies that we can bring into the classroom to make the student's internal invisible state of well-being more visible. Mm. And so I was very influenced by that. And then at the same time, I was running some professional development sessions at a school around positive education. And there was a teacher who came up to me. He was like an 11th grade um, physics teacher. And he said, you know, I, I'm all for this. I think this is a really good thing to do. I have two teenagers myself. I've been a long-term teacher. I do want to boost the mental health of my students. But I don't understand how I can build something that I can't see. And it was just one of those, like, lightning bulb moments for me where I'm like, you, yes. <laughs> you know, because as a trained psychologist, I got taught how to see well-being. Yeah. And so for me... It happens so naturally. You know, I walk into a room, I read a person's body language, I listen to their word choices, I listen to their intonation, I check in what's happening with my own body, with countertransference. But, of course, a long-term Year 11 physics teacher hasn't been taught those basic skills of how to tune in and take something that's invisible and make it more visible. And Mm so, yeah, it was just this really great question. I was like, that is so true. We can't build it unless we can see it first. And so... That was kind of the genesis of visible well-being. And we use the search framework to train faculty and staff in the school on how it is that they can help students to take something that's invisible and make it more visible to themselves and others and how it is that they can engage in 
these small little practices that help them to understand their strengths, that help them to see and manage their emotions, to help them have good habits, set goals, good relationships, coping, attention and awareness, et cetera. And so there's a bit of science behind it, um, but there's just a lot of practice. You know, we we work through mindfulness practices that you can run in a classroom or a co-curricular or before an examination period or if you're about to get on the field for an inter-school sporting competition, So that's a little skill that you can do to cultivate the attention and awareness pathway. We work on emotional check-ins for all year levels. So you come into the class at the end of a lunch break and you can do a quick, the teacher can do a quick emotional check-in. It can be a weather emotional check-in. So what's your weather right now? I'm sunny, I'm stormy, I'm cloudy, I'm gloomy. You know, be quick, just thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways. So they're just these little practices that you can bring into a classroom that don't take time away from the curriculum that we need to teach, but are making well-being visible. And that way the students themselves get a sense of, I'm not doing so good in this class. So what are some things I can do some deep breathing? I can let the teacher know so I can re-engage in the learning. And the teacher can see across the classroom who might need a little bit of extra attention and care in that class to sort of boost their well-being so their brain is receptive for learning. Mm-hmm. This is fascinating and I think that's a really important um, area of education to focus in on. I, I very much like the analogy you've drawn with what's sometimes called, as you were talking about in the science of learning, thinking aloud in the process yes. of just, is it, as a great teaching strategy of modelling how mm-hmm. one should think through a problem and model it for students. You know, how, how, for example, the teacher works through a mathematical problem step by step and seeing you know, the students see this as a, as a good example of modelling. Of course, then getting the students to do that out loud themselves so you can see maybe where they're going wrong or maybe where they're going right in their in their process of thinking and also for developing their own metacognition, their sense of how they're thinking through these things. So I want to dig a little deeper then on how that works then for the well-being side of things. So you've given some excellent examples of students expressing their emotions through a kind of a well-being check, you know, put your thumb up, put it down, put it somewhere in the middle to, to gauge your mood. Does it go a, f- a bit further than that in a kind of way analogous to the thinking out loud process where you're, you know, you're, you're really showing how you're thinking through a problem and as you advance, you're thinking more, you get more complex with that. Are students on this model given kind of emotional training to really express their emotions in quite some depth and quite some richness, not just emotions, but also show their strengths, show their weaknesses so teachers and their peers can identify them? And how, yeah. how does that work? And I can see that being so important. And on the emotional expression side, perhaps particularly important for boys at school, given how it's, you know, it's perceived in, in many societies as a kind of sign of weakness for boys yeah. and for men mm. to express mm-hmm. their emotions. Mm. Wow. You have asked a lot there and um, <laughs> <laughs> they're all great though. I don't know which one to go with. Like let's right. just start with the boys to begin with and then I'll map backwards onto your question. I have done quite a lot of work with um, all boys schools who really have tried to sort of fight like toxic masculinity and fight those gender stereotypes. And um, it's always been a really enriching experience to see that when you create a climate of normalizing the experience and expression of emotions how relieved those young boys feel 
and then how normal that becomes that they can express their emotions without being without it in fact it becomes a sign of strength to be able to express your emotions and know your strengths and take a moment out to do some mindful breathing rather than a sign of weakness so i just wanted to add that, that little footnote but in terms of your question john basically i think your question is once these techniques get taught to the teachers and then come down into the classroom, what's the kind of evolution of that? Like how how do we start to mature yeah. through that so that it's not just an emotional check-in at the start of the classroom, it becomes a way of being for the teachers, the faculty, the staff and the students mm-hmm. themselves. And that's what I see in the, the schools who've been on the long-term journey for visible well-being is that the students themselves are able to identify in the moment, this is my state of emotion. It doesn't have to be because it's an emotional check-in at the start of the class. The students themselves identify. So we have students, um, we have schools where the students are allowed to get up and it's called take five. So they're allowed to leave the class and take five and go for a walk around the classroom or go into the mindfulness room and just take five minutes out and then come back and re-engage in the learning. And that's self-management. The students themselves are able to mm. identify, this is how I'm feeling in the moment and it's not going to be effective for me learning or I might be wanting to disrupt other people. So I'm going to take five and I will go and go for a walk around the classroom or I will go into the mindfulness room and sit on a beanbag and, um, or I'll have my own mindfulness tool on my desk. And so, you know, I'll pick up my little kind of squishy rock and just squish it for 30 seconds so I can get back into the learning. Mm -hmm. Um, You also see that maturation with the use of mindfulness and brain breaks. So the students actually asking the teachers, can we do a brain break halfway through a lesson? Because they can see that they're starting to lose their focus or the teacher being able to say, okay, I sense the energy has gone down. We've got a double period here. Like who would like to do a brain break? And the students will get up and lead the brain break for the rest of the students. And the teachers will get in trouble if they don't offer a brain break halfway through that double period. Nick's smiling because he's he's seen this in action. And um, the other sort of maturation that I see is that genuine internalising of strengths. Yeah. So the genuine internalising of young people understanding that, I do have strengths that I can draw on. I have my own unique uh, sort of constellation of strengths, but I also have this whole um, smorgasbord of strengths that I can draw on. So now's a moment where I really need to draw on my self-regulation because I've just gotten home from school and instead of checking WhatsApp and Insta, I actually need to sit down and do my science homework, you know. So they start to internalise the strengths themselves and they're utilising the strengths in the classroom and they're spotting strengths in others. So they're able to see someone else's humour or someone else's courage or someone else's teamwork and, and to um, acknowledge that and see the good in other people. And that's that's one of the, I used this term earlier, the byproduct. That's one of the byproducts. I mean, we've done official evaluation on visible wellbeing. We've shown that it increases wellbeing literacy in students. We've shown that it increases um, various mental health outcomes in students and in staff and faculty. Um, one of the qualitative studies that we did found this beautiful outcome of um, like a social glue that because everyone in the school is speaking the same language, is working towards those same six pathways, 
it becomes this moment of kind of we're all on the same page, we all have the same shared understanding, a shared language, and it creates this sense of connection and compassion. And so beautiful stories from teachers who are coming into the classroom feeling a bit distressed because they've had a hard lunchtime and they've had a difficult conversation with a student and they're busy marking exams and they haven't eaten lunch. And then they come into the classroom and the students, because the students have learned to make well-being visible, they've learned to tune into what are the well-being signals of others. The students will say to the teacher, are you okay? And the teacher wow. will be like, you know, it's just been a really tough day for me and I haven't eaten my lunch yet. And then the students will be like, okay, eat your apple. Like, let's just do five minutes of mindful walking before we start the class. So you get that wow. kind of shared connection and compassion and then, you know, the students become the masters. Wow. It seems to me in, in that part of what you're describing here, you know, so John and I do do a lot of work around like flow coaching, if you will, or focus coaching. Mm-hmm. One of the things we often talk about is these sort of these struggle phases where you're kind of working through something and wrestling. And then you hit a point where eventually you kind of drop into this effortless state. That's that's what I kept thinking about as you described, you know, like you're building up these skills, you're acquiring these capacities, and at some point you stop thinking and you just start doing. Yes, it, exactly. It just becomes internalized. So you don't have to kind of stop and think now's a moment where I'll do some mindful breathing or I'll um, ask for a brain break or I'll draw on my strengths or I'll connect with someone else. It becomes second nature to do that. And that's what we want. We want young people to graduate with that skill set. Um, the other thing that I was going to say around that your comment on flow is that, again, for me, I just think it's so important if we're working in positive education that we're marrying the science of well-being with the science of teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. So the two things support each other and you, you, you're not a teacher on the ground going, okay, which one do I do? <laughs> do I do curriculum and science and learning or do I do well-being? It shouldn't be an either or. They should be woven in with each other and that's what I do with visible well-being. And so many teachers know the concept of the learning pit um, and the idea that, you know, all learning is um, we're learning something brand new, like we're, 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 we're creating a new neural network biologically in our brain. So we're, we're, it's, learning is a tough process and we're asking students every day to start with an unknown and then make it known. And so the learning pit, the science around the learning pit um, it's a beautiful sort of metaphor where you see the student standing up and they know they've gotten to a point of knowing. And then you say, okay, now we want to move on to the next topic. So you're moving back into the unknown. And what happens is that students go down the learning pit. So they go into, I don't know this. I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling self-doubt. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm never going to learn this. I'm going to look dumb in front of everyone. But then eventually they start to go, oh, I'm starting to understand this little bit. I'm scaffolding this bit of knowledge with this bit of knowledge. And so they climb out of the learning pit and they get to that point of confidence and mastery or um, to your example, Nick and John, they get to that point of flow. And so if you think about the learning pit, um, which is a which is a tool that's used in the science of learning, that's also a well-being journey, going down that learning pit and having that sense of frustration and self-doubt and I can't do this and not having the stamina to push yourself through to get out. All of those little teachable moments require a knowledge of well-being and well-being can actually help you come out of that learning pit. So that's another example where when we educate staff and faculty around the science of well-being, they're able to use that in that moment to support the learning. Yeah. 
okay, thank you so much for, for phrasing my question in a much more succinct way and then answering it in such a wonderful, wonderfully detailed <laughs> and clear way. Um, and this brings me to something I'd love to ask you. It's going kind of from all these practical and conceptual considerations about flourishing and these frameworks and how it's embedded in education to a kind of a, I guess, a philosophical question about the philosophy of education, which mm-hmm. connects directly with what you've been saying, which is, I mean, something I've been fascinated in, in learning about from your work, you know, preparing for the show, is that you, you conduct and you draw upon extensive research that shows that enhancing student well-being improves their academic performance. Mm-hmm. And you argue that among the key reasons we should promote well-being in schools is because it improves learning, as you've been discussing here, right? And, and the development of other important skills that schools should aim to develop, such as creativity. Mm-hmm. So it seems then, on your view, education has kind of two key aims, to develop the knowledge and skills student need to perform well academically, and also to build student well-being. Mm-hmm. Now, human flourishing is often defined in terms of well-being and areas related to development of knowledge and skills such as fulfillment of potential life satisfaction and the development of character strengths and virtues as we've seen in our discussion so my question to you then is would you say then that the overarching aim of education is to support human flourishing yes without question um you know if you go back to that definition of of the tripart thing of human flourishing feeling good functioning well and doing good that's we, we want young people to be graduating from this institution in our society. So if you step back and look at education and schools, you know, they're an institution within our society. We have multiple institutions. We have governments, we have church, we have family, we have school. So what is the purpose of this institution in our society? And I think the purpose of this institution is to help develop young people so they grow up to be productive and positive contributors to our society. And um, so flourishing, absolutely. Uh, and and that that's the OECD, so the um, Organisation for Economic Cooperative Development, did a large-scale review probably about five years ago now across 37 OECD countries looking at a content analysis of national curriculums and looking at what were the common themes that were coming out of these national curriculums across um, 37 countries. So this is these are governments saying this is what we think the purpose of education is. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, I can't quite remember the stats now, but somewhere around 70% of those national curriculums had well-being, um, mm-hmm. and I'm just using that as a broad umbrella yeah. term, built in at the national level. So at the national level, these countries were saying one of the key purposes of schools and education is to develop a state of flourishing in an individual, mm. is to develop a state of good social skills in an individual, is to, is to develop emotional management in the students. So to graduate with academic knowledge but to graduate also with a wellbeing toolkit. And I think if we don't have that, as a purpose for the institution of schools and education, then we're not setting ourselves up terribly well for the future that we need. We need young people to come out with that academic knowledge and with critical thinking skills and, you know, 21st century skills, but also with a knowledge of their strengths, a willingness and capacity to be pro-social, to use their creativity to solve some of these wicked problems that we're seeing in the world right now. And so I don't, I think we're doing half a job if we don't say that flourishing is an explicit aim of schools and education. 
So let's let's go on that idea of the job here, because I think, you know, we've talked about one area um, that might better impact a young person's ability to flourish, which is school. But the other main area, probably the, the primary area is parenting, right? So let's use this as an opportunity to kind of segue into that topic. Let, let's start with, again, just kind of basic terms and definitions. Mm-hmm. What is strengths-based parenting? How is it maybe different from some other models um, that you might see? And just yeah. if you just talk a little bit of the research, you know, um, mm-hmm. kind of the, the some of the, the uh, grounding and the, the idea of the negativity bias, some of the outcomes we know we can expect from strengths-based parenting, just a general overview to get us started. Well, strength-based parenting is an approach to parenting where we aim first and foremost to identify and promote the good qualities in our children before we seek to um, correct and overcome and work with their shortcomings, um, their weaknesses, you know, the areas where they're not doing so well. And so really all it is is a sort of fulcrum shift to how do we understand the developmental process. And for many of us, um, we were we were raised and there's still a, a big kind of, it's invisible, but it's there in society that development works best when we identify what is wrong and we fix that. And strength-based parenting just takes a, a, a um, kind of paradigm shift and says, well, yes, that is one way to develop a young person. Um, but an alternative way to develop a young person is to start with what are their natural talents, assets, strengths? What are the things that they do well instinctively and naturally and start there and amplify and platform those things? And that word before is really important because it's not an either or. And so many people hear strength-based parenting and they have this kind of binary thinking and they think, oh, if I'm only doing that, then right. I'm not right my child's, you know, bad study habits or their messy room or their impatience or their, you know, kind of rudeness. And so it's not an either or, it's just you focus on what is right with your children before you turn your attention to weaknesses and shortcomings. And what the science shows is that if we change our lens and we look first at what is right with our children, um, not only does that amplify their strengths, and their skills and give them a great chance for sort of reaching their optimum potential and having high levels of well-being, that's the starting point to go back to weaknesses, areas of improvement, shortcomings, faults, foibles, and work on those more constructively. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to. Yeah, I was about to <laughs> our numbered questions. Yeah, I was about to, about to ask where we should go next because there's there's many different routes we can go here. We bunch of questions we could ask you, Hilly. Uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, thank you for that answer, Lee. So, then, at what stage in a child's development do you think the focus on strengths begin? Okay, so mm-hmm. it must take some years for strengths to show and for a child to explore enough skills, see what the strengths might be, and perhaps, I mean. Kind of well, I don't want to ask a follow up question yet. I'll keep you succinct, but I was just thinking this might connect with what we were discussing about meaning and purpose when that yeah. starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's a really good connection point. So um, again, I'm going to go back to the sort of developmental psychology and what the neuroscientists tell us in terms of when when should we ta- start taking this strength based approach with our kids, and what the developmental psychologists show us is that it's around the age of four four years of age, that you will start to see some sort of 
evidence of the unique strengths of each individual child. Um, up until at that age, it's the psychologists say you will start to see aspects of temperament. Um, so to get technical here, we we have we we see the temperament of a young person around the age of four is when the developmental psychologists say you start to see distinct aspects of personality and character strengths are basic are essentially positive aspects of personality and so you start to see them around the age of four again this is kind of the average age so there might be some parents listening saying oh I really started to see some of my children's strengths at the age of two and that could be the case too but around the age of four is where you start to see some of those strengths coming forward so you see a child who just has abundant curiosity or like exceptional sort of compassion and kindness or the capacity to like build something amazing out of lego blocks um so creativity and sort of innovation skills so that's kind of the first phase where you would start to see some of those distinct strengths coming through the teenage years are also another kind of big shift developmental shift in terms of the strengths becoming a little bit more crystallized and also a little bit more specialized. So kids generally kind of try everything, then they get into their teenage years and they sort of narrow down a little bit more. And, and that's partly brain development. It's also partly the school system. So from the answer in terms of when you would see those strengths in your kids, it's, it's from the age of four onwards, and then you'll really see them start to pop out more in the teen years. Having said that, um, I'm a big advocate for adopting a strength-based approach from like pre-pregnancy, you know, like <laughs> um, because it's not just about spotting the strengths in your kids. As a parent, it's actually about taking a, that broader kind of paradigm shift, that broader sort of philosophy of like everyone has strengths and I can cultivate the skills of spotting strengths in other people. And as a parent, I have my strengths too. So as a parent, what are my strengths? Is it forgiveness? Is it teamwork? Is it patience? Is it creativity? Is it fun and playfulness? So the more that I come into my role as a parent, being clear on my own strengths and how I can bring my strengths into my role, the better it is for my child. Even before I've started to actually see strengths in them, I can draw on my own strengths as a parent. And um, I conducted some research with one of my, uh, no, she was a yeah research student of mine, Jessie Sun, and we looked at the benefit of strength-based parenting for the parents themselves. We've done a lot of research on the benefit of strength-based parenting for kids and teens, but this was a study that looked at the benefit of strength-based parenting for the parents themselves. And um, we put parents through an intervention. We had a control group. We asked parents ahead of time to fill in surveys on um, parental self-efficacy, meaning like how confident are you that you can do your job as a parent and um, also the positive emotions that you experience as a result of being a parent. And what we found through that intervention, and the, the intervention was a strength-based parenting intervention. So we taught the parents how to see and utilise their own strengths and then how to see and amplify the strengths of their kids. And at the end of that intervention, there was no shift in the control group. It was a waitlist control group, um, but significant improvements in the parents who went through the strength-based parenting intervention, much more confident in their parenting role yeah. um, because they're teaching themselves to see the good in their kids. And speaking personally as a parent, because of the negativity bias, which you mentioned earlier, Nick, 
you know, our brains are hardwired to see what's going wrong before they will see what is going right. And um, there's always something going wrong, you know, with our kids and in our family. So if we've got this negativity bias, it's very easy for us to feel like I'm failing as a parent because we're always seeing the areas where our kids aren't improving and where they are lagged and where they're not kind of doing what we would like them to do or where they're struggling socially and we have concern for them. So Mm -hmm. when we teach parents to also intentionally look at what's going right with our kids, what are, where are they getting joy and energy? You know, where are they showing kind of a quick learning curve? It just balances us out. So we're like, okay, yeah, this thing hasn't improved yet. This thing is still a source of pain for my child or frustration for me. But at the same time, I'm seeing that my child is loyal or they're fun or they're playful or they're creative. And so it gives you that sense of, okay, I am actually doing a good yeah. job. Here. Yeah. And yeah. so increases so- parental self-efficacy and increases in positive emotions, particularly, um, I can see you've got a question, but I'll just say this one little thing. We use Barbara Fredrickson's scale on her top 10 positive emotions and we ask parents before the intervention, when you think of your kids, to what degree do you experience, you know, uh, gratitude, love, pride, awe, wonder, joy, et cetera. And then we ask them at the end of the intervention and the control group. The control group didn't change um, but the parents who went through the intervention had significantly more positive emotions when they thought about their kids, which is so important because if you think about all of Barbara Fredrickson and then before Barb Alice Eisen's work on the critical role that positive emotions do for our capacity to feel good, function well and do good, the more that we can inject positive emotions into the life of a parent, the better it is for the parent and for the child themselves but we also found some specific emotions significantly increased. And what I found really beautiful is that love didn't change. Mm. So these parents came into the intervention very high on love for their kids, which you can imagine there's a self-selection effect. They've stuck their hand up and said, I will do a three-week sure. intervention. So their, so their love for their child didn't change at all. There was no significant improvement in love. They You always love your child, but joy increased, pride increased, wonder increased, and awe increased. So when these parents were looking at their kids through this lens of strength, they're able to step back and go, oh, wow, that's amazing. You're amazing that you can do that. So they had this sense of awe and joy and wonder and pride in their children, which I just find to be a really beautiful yeah. uh, finding in that study. It's like, it's like gratitude for people. They just, you're just constantly practicing seeing the good, yeah. right, but in somebody. Yeah. It's yeah, not about ignoring the bad. You, yeah, you absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Just just spending time. Like we come back to that idea of asymmetry again, spending a little mm, bit more time yeah. on one than other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. I've got I've got two kind of immediate follow-up questions. We'll do these somewhat quick hitter. <clears throat> You've mentioned a couple different positive outcomes that you'll see from strengths-based parenting for parents. You yeah. also mentioned you've done a lot of research on the, the positive outcomes for the children. Will you just mm-hmm. give us some of those highlights? What, what do we see from the research? Okay. Um, increases in life satisfaction, increases in self-confidence, increases in positive emotions, reductions in anxiety, reductions in depression, reductions in stress, a greater capacity for what's called strength-based coping. So utilizing your strengths to cope with life's adversity and challenge um, and better academic grades. Perfect. 
That's oh, a little beautiful. So, <laughs> yeah, just like that's just a, a sample, right? And so you've got that for the kids. You've got these beautiful outcomes for parents as well. So the next kind of follow-up question is how? You know, if you're you're talking to parents out there listening to this episode, and we'll we'll get to this a little bit with when John finishes off with a flourishing question. Mm. But before then, it what would you say to parents? Like if you were to give them one, two, maybe three. 80-20, right? Where the juice is really worth the squeeze in terms mm-hmm. of action steps. What might be some of those to immediately start moving towards a strengths-based parenting approach? Yeah. So there are a number of really sort of actionable concrete strategies that parents can do. Um, the first one that I always recommend is to take the free values in action character strength survey. So yep. there's a youth version and a parent version for that. And I guess you'll put the links um, yep. Yep. In, mm-hmm. in there. So That's such a great thing to do as a family is to sit down and the parents can do the adult version of the character strength survey. So they find out that, you know, they're high on forgiveness or they're high on innovation or they're high on problem solving um, or they're high on um, teamwork, whatever it happens to be. But then there's also a youth version. So you can get your kids to do the equivalent survey. It's, it's It's a shorter version, but it comes out with the same 24 character strengths. Yeah. And... So that's the first thing I would do because awareness is the first step. Do the survey, have a conversation as a family around, well, what are your character strengths? What are my character strengths? Where are there some similar character strengths and where do our character strengths differ? Um, From that, a really lovely thing to do is the notion of a character strengths family tree. So, again, sitting down with your kids and looking at your immediate family but also looking at extended family and looking at your lineage. I did this with Mm. my own two Mm. kids who are in primary school and we sat down and had a look at grandparents, great-grandparents, both sides of my family emigrated to Australia from Ireland. And so I had a great discussion with my two kids around, well, what do you think would have been the character strengths of both sides of the family, like making this very big life-changing decision to relocate from Ireland, catch a ship forever, come across to this whole brand new country. And I could see in my own children, they were talking, well, they must have had hope. And they must have had courage and bravery and they must have had like a lot of social intelligence. And as we're having this conversation, I could see both of my two kids at that age starting to own those qualities in themselves because it was like, wow, this is intergenerational like this. So family tree is a really good one to do. Um, Strengths challenges are a great thing to do within your family, Mm. identifying, okay, so what what do we want to be as a family? Do we want to be, you mentioned, gratitude before Nick like do we want to be more grateful do we want to be more courageous do we want to be more kind do we want to have more teamwork do we need more self-regulation so setting up this kind of all right for this month we're all going to hold ourselves accountable to being more self-regulated and we're not going to have dessert every night we're going to have it every second night so just really really concrete fun things that you can do to bring that strengths language and that kind of strengths approach into your family beautiful perfect thank you so much those are great yeah, I love this idea of the strengths tree. I mean, this is great. I'd, I'd love to try this, do this, to, to look back through family tree and see what the strengths are of different individuals and then maybe connect up with the role they played in your own upbringing and yeah. then thinking where you acquired certain character skills and strengths from. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Lee. Right. Um, Nick, are we going for the flourishing question now? Ooh, yeah, I think so. We've got what you, you okay with, you know, three more minutes, Lee, and then we'll wrap yeah. just the final question. Great. Okay. Yeah. Go for it, John. All right. So Lee, thank you so much for this incredibly rich, fascinating conversation. For our final question, we like to ask all our guests what we call the flourishing question. 
What's the one lesson on flourishing you want our listeners to walk away with? And what might be a practical step for putting that lesson into action? You have had such good questions. One line answer, but there's a really big question. Okay, yeah. no, so uh, I would say for me it's gratitude. Um, just kind of seeing the sacred in as much as you can. And gratitude for me has been a huge part of my own healing journey um, in my own life, um, but particularly living through a global pandemic with my kids and my husband um, and acknowledging, definitely sitting with the struggles that we had, the things that we lost, the adversity that we um, faced, starting with the struggle but intentionally moving into the positive and that came through gratitude so what are we grateful for we're grateful that we have access to wi-fi you know we're grateful that our school was able to shuffle pretty quickly so that we could do remote learning we're grateful that we have a backyard um we're grateful that we have a puppy dog who's been like this absolute source of joy you know we're grateful at the moment that it's summer and we have nice weather in australia so really just acknowledging the struggle but moving into that state of looking for the good. And so I think gratitude is a just, it's just been a huge part in my own personal journey of healing. Um, it's been really critical in my family and particularly during the, the pandemic. Um, and in terms of practical strategies for doing that, just daily gratitude practices. So if you're sitting at the dinner table or about to go to bed, you know, what are three things that, three happy things that happened to you today? What are three things that you're grateful for? Um, during the pandemic, we, I set up a, where is it? I'm just looking. What kind of puppy, by the way, Lee? She's a moodle. Mm. She's a cross between a Maltese and a um, poodle. And she's cute. cute. Sorry, I, this is bad filming. I just thought I had a gratitude jar and I thought it was here. It must be in the kitchen. So um, whoever's editing this, I'm really sorry. Let's like start. Gratitude again. jars by the food. That's what I just heard. Yes. So uh. during the pandemic, I set up a gratitude jar in our kitchen and I had a little thing of post-it notes. And whenever we felt grateful for something, you write it in the post-it note, you put it in the gratitude jar. And then I promised my kids, this was this was in the middle of one of our deep lockdowns in Melbourne. I promised my kids, if the jar gets full, when we get out of lockdown, you can go to your favorite cafe. You can order whatever you want off the menu. You can have five chocolate cakes and four milkshakes if you want, <laughs> which we did. And I took the jar with me and then we opened up the jar and over the course of that 45 minutes, we just pulled out a whole lot of post-it notes, like right down to the bottom of the jar, remembering that in the midst of this very long in Melbourne sort of five-month military-grade lockdown that yes. there were still all these little moments of good. So the gratitude jar, just daily practices of what went well, three good things. And um, another really good one for schools but also for families is the gratitude graffiti board. So just getting a whiteboard popping it up in the classroom or at home, popping it up on your fridge. And as you feel these moments of gratitude, just writing it up on the whiteboard. I love the yeah. gratitude graffiti board. Great. Great. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Lee, we're at the end of our time. We, we really, really appreciate you spending the time with us. This was excellent. Um, everything we had hoped for so many good tidbits, just I think in general on flourishing, but on, on thinking about flourishing for young people and trying to help them, you know, find those sorts of states frequently as well. 
Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank yeah, so it's much. been a really great conversation and I appreciate you inviting me on. Well, thank you very much. Yep. Enjoy your Wednesday. Have a good day. Okay. Thank you so Take much. Care, guys. All right. Bye-bye. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.